Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Masson newsroom, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano, Brendan Mortensen here with you, fresh off a live 4 p.m. deadline show from these very studio, these very seats. I believe during the show I said incorrectly that the Orioles are opening up a three-game series with the Detroit Tigers forgetting that they had played the first game of that four-game series last night. I think we're all trying to forget that that game happened. Brendan, I can't tell you how scrambled my brain is. Yeah. But yeah, we would like to forget that that game happened. Well, even the fact that the Orioles are playing baseball tonight seems like a complete afterthought. Everything seems, yeah, the the fact that all these teams are playing at 7 o'clock after there was a 4 p.m. deadline always seems a little strange. Guys are still on flights. Deals are still being announced, weirdly enough. There are all these kind of deals that are happening that happen right before the 4 p.m. deadline that are getting announced and and news is being broken about that. After 4 p.m., the biggest news for the Baltimore Orioles front, the only move that they made at this 2021 trade deadline, Brendan. Well, today, they also made one earlier. They made one earlier, or earlier in the day, true. Yes. How could I forget about the right. Sean Armstrong? The only major league. What am I deal. doing? Oh, Brendan. Oh, man, I botched it. This I mean, podcast is off to quite a start. They traded Sean Armstrong, who was not on their 40-man roster, was with AAA Norfolk, and, and, sent, and got back my favorite player, Brendan, cash considerations. Always puts up strong numbers in the second halves. Yeah. Fantastic ERA. Even better whip. Great batting average, two-way player, cash considerations. Yeah. Uh, they made that move, and that was uh, that's the only real move that they made, to be completely honest. Yeah, I mean, Sean Armstrong was not going to make any sort of impact at the major league level this year, we're assuming. The I rest mean, of this year. He, he made a yeah. negative impact for the first couple right. months of the season. He is 30 years old. He had an ERA over 8.5 in his 20 innings in the majors at the start of the year, and I can't assume that... Mike Elias and company would have looked at Sean Armstrong in AAA. Even though he is pitching decently well in AAA, he's got an ERA of 3.18 through 15 games. But I don't think he really would have gotten the call over some of the other pitchers that the Orioles have at the AAA level at this point. They they would actually want to see get reps at the Major League level. You know what you have with Sean Armstrong, at least from the beginning of the year, and what you had was something that was not very good. The Rays are probably just gambling that they get the 2020 version of Sean Armstrong, who had a 1.80 ERA for the Orioles in his games last year. This doesn't really make much of a difference, I don't think, for the Orioles, Paul. I don't think we would have seen Sean Armstrong at all this I don't, season. I don't know how long we just talked about Sean Armstrong, but that is infinitely longer than I think we should have talked about this deal being made. <laughs> it was a deal that occurred. It, it, it occurred, but That's it really it. does not... It's not going to make an impact. ...deserve that many more words. Sean yeah. Armstrong was, like you said, probably not going to come back to this team. Very much struggled uh, in the small sample size that we saw him. It was great last year. Sub-2 ERA last year. Struggled with injuries, but was not going to come back up to this team. We were definitely going to see some younger arms. So they get some cash considerations for him. The bigger move, Brendan, is, is, is you buried... 
the lead here. Freddie Galvis being traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. Yeah. Uh, right up until the deadline, we thought if they were going to make a move, it was most likely going to be Paul Fry or Tanner Scott, maybe Dylan Tate, and then if they really wanted to uh, trade one of their top, one of their, their pieces, their big pieces, it would have been one of the three M's, Trey Mancini, Cedric Mullins, or John Means. It was none of those guys. It was none of the relievers. They end up sending out Freddie Galvis, who is dealing with a right quad strain and uh, is currently on the injured list, and they send him back to the organization that he spent his first six seasons of his big league career with. Well, a third of the way through the season, I think if you looked at the Orioles roster and had to make one prediction as to who would be traded from this roster, most people through the first 60, 70 games would have told you Freddie Galvis because before his injury, he was playing well. He had a batting average right around 250, had an OPS of 720. He hit nine home runs, had a war of one. It looked like the consistent play that we were expecting from Freddie Galvis when he signed the one-year deal with the Orioles. And he fit that prototype of somebody that Michael Elias would deal at the deadline. He was on an expiring contract. He probably was not going to be re-signed for the 2022 season. So Freddie Galvis, before that injury, was probably the guy that everybody looked to as a trained candidate at the deadline. Of course, goes down with that injury, and I think we all just kind of forgot a little bit about Freddie Galvis. Maybe not forgot, but we're probably just doubtful that a contending team would make a move for a veteran shortstop that is on the mend. He's probably not going to be in a major league game for at least another two weeks. So it was a little bit surprising that Freddie Galvis was moved and that the Orioles got a, a decent pitching prospect in return. But it makes sense if you're a contending team that knows that you're going to be competitive in two or three weeks when Freddie Galvis returns. Yeah, I think that... The, when the initial diagnosis came out, and especially when he left the field after he suffered that quad strain in Toronto, the play itself looked bad, and I think that our minds immediately went to this could be a potential season-ending injury. Then we get the news it's going to be a one- to two-month injury. We're thinking, you know, you get that diagnosis rather in mid to late June, that's probably not going to mean that he's going to be back in time for the deadline, but here he is. Set to take at-bats down in Sarasota, Florida, on his way back. You mentioned maybe about two weeks before he returns, and we'll see. Of course, he has to go through the medicals and everything to make sure that that this deal 100% goes through and that the Phillies like what they see and feel like he can return with enough time left in the season to make an impact here. But for I think for him to show that he can come back from this, that he is ready to come back, I think that makes a major difference. If he were still shelved and if he were still like going through workouts but not back on a baseball field, I think that that would make him harder to deal. But I think that the Phillies saw, all right, he's going to be taking at-bats back in Sarasota. Uh, we feel like he's going to be back soon enough because at this point, you're getting a rental player. Every week matters. You know, if you're getting a guy for six weeks, that's very different than if you're getting a guy for eight weeks. So uh, I think that it matters that they feel like they're going to get him back with just enough time. But yeah, I mean, Freddie Galvis... In this, those 72 games for the Orioles, he was exactly what they needed from him. He was uh, a solid defense at shortstop to above-average defense at shortstop, especially considering he's 31 years old. little bit of pop in the bat, those nine homers that you mentioned. And at a time when the Orioles really, there, was not, there were not many good storylines around this team 
in the months of May and June. You know, they went on that crazy long losing streak at one point. Uh, they were, what, 5-23, and 23, I think, in the month of May. And Freddie Galvis was pretty good for them during that stretch. Yeah, they were 5-23 and 23 in May, 10-17 and 17 in June, and there were not too many good storylines like Dean Kramer. Some of their top prospects were struggling. Dean Kramer was really struggling. Ryan Mountcastle had not yet hit his stride until he did in mid to, you know, early June. So there were not many good storylines, and Freddie Galvis somewhat carried the offense. I mean, in, in May, he hit 234, but he hit seven homers, had an 805 OPS. And then in 23 games in June, he was hitting 253. So he gave the offense a little bit of spark. He gave people something to talk about with when it came to that team, and he was a fixture in the lineup, and Brandon Hyde had all but good things to say uh, about his presence in the clubhouse as well. Yeah, and for a contending team, Freddie Galvis is pretty much exactly what you would need. He's a switch-hitting shortstop that provides good defense, and he is a decent enough bat to be a plug-and-play in a lineup. I can't imagine the Phillies are envisioning Freddie Galvis as their everyday shortstop. No. I assume he is going to be a bench bat utility type of player who you can use in a pinch if, say, Didi Gregorius goes down with an injury. Yeah. But and, he provides value there. And and the Phillies have had a notoriously bad infield defense this year. Bad right. defense, period, but infield defense in particular. So maybe he's a maybe he's a late-game substitution, too, considering Didi's not a very good defensive shortstop at this point in his career and they could probably use some help at second base as well so yeah absolutely I think that he he provides a lot defensively for them that a team that desperately needs it but the thing that's important to point out there is that he is providing value to a team that is looking to win games and compete for a playoff spot Freddie Galvis is not really giving the Orioles a ton of value here in 2021 especially when you look at the play of his replacement Ramon Urias, who yeah. has been better for the Orioles in a shorter period of time. You talked about Freddie Galvis earlier on in the year. He had a war of 1.0 in 72 games through uh, 40-something games for Ramon Urias. He has a war of 1.2 through 49 games. So Fred, uh, Ramon Urias has given you more value in fewer games than Freddie Galvis has. And he has been a really surprising story for the Orioles at shortstop. And when Freddie Galvis was coming back from injury, Paul, I assume you would just move Arias back to second base, but then that closes the door for Jemai Jones potentially getting called up. So you're actually helping a little bit by trading Freddie Galvis because you're leaving that spot for Ramon Arias and second base becomes open for a prospect. Yeah, and this was the plan all along uh, because Michael Elias signed Freddie Galvis to the $1.5 million deal late into the offseason and threw in a $250,000 trade bonus if he got traded during the season. That's exactly what they were hoping. Both sides were expecting this pretty much to the point where Freddie Galvis would play well enough that he would find himself on a contender by midseason and get to make a potential September-October run with the team and that the Orioles would get back some kind of prospect package in return for him and that it would open up a spot in that infield. And he did the same thing with Michael Franco. The Franco deal has not worked out so far. He's hitting in the 210s and obviously has not been the offensive, uh, got not given them the production that they were hoping for. But the idea is you sign two of these guys, you hope that one of them pans out, you trade one of them, and you open up a spot in that infield. Because I think at this point, they're looking at the rest of the season in August and September for Ramon Arias now, 
who has all of a sudden grabbed hold of this spot. I don't know if this was planned for Ramon Arias to be uh, hitting 278. I don't know if he will the rest of the season, uh, but he's at this point, it's his, his job to lose, I think. They were expecting, unfortunately, Richie Martin, who has struggled with injuries, uh, to probably make his way back to the big leagues. He could make his way back to the big leagues at some point in 2021 uh, to come up. And they're probably still hoping for Jemai Jones to be back with this team and to be up at the major league level, maybe in the final two months. So it opens up a spot in that infield and log jam is probably too strong a word to say because the talent is obviously not overflowing when it comes to the middle infield, but you want to see these young guys play. And that is the biggest, most important thing when it comes to signing free agents for Michael Elias, not blocking guys. So they sign Freddie Galvis. You know, it is a temporary uh, holdover at shortstop. They open up that roster spot. And now they are, there is no, there are no impediments to a Richie Martin, a Ramon Rios, a Jemai Jones from coming up and making an impact. Yeah, and at 27 years old, Ramon Rios has played well enough to continue to get that start at shortstop, and I think he probably will continue to do so for the rest of the 2021 season. Michael Elias also said that this he is expecting to see some minor leaguers get called up in the second half of this year that could be playing middle infield. I expect he is probably alluding to somebody like Jemai Jones, who we could see shortly at second base. But Paul, let's talk a little bit about Tyler Birch, who the Orioles got in return before you, for Freddie Galvis. Before you do that, somebody yeah. on Facebook uh, saying, stop with the war talk. How about this? Ramon Arias is hitting 278. He's got a 760 OPS, which is on base plus slugging. Uh, he's got four homers, 23 RBIs, a stolen base, 13 walks, 350 on base. His career averages so far in 59 games, he's hitting 290 with a 790 OPS. Sorry, I took sabermetrics out of it. He's been yeah. good. You mean the things that like, and go also, into you, the if you watch, yeah. calculation? Yeah, yeah. 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 and if yeah. you watch the games, crazy enough, he's been good, too. He has uh, been very right. good, Sorry. surprisingly so. Let's talk about Tyler Burke. Yes, because when this Freddie Galvis deal was announced, we talked about it on our live trade deadline show, we both kind of said that we would be surprised if the Orioles got the kind of return that they got for Jose Iglesias, which was Garrett Stallings, who is now in the back end of the Orioles' top 30. But they still do get a decent minor league pitching prospect in Tyler Birch, who is the 36th ranked prospect in the Philly system, according to Fangraphs. He's a reliever. He's got a 2.45 ERA so far in high A in his eight appearances. He's just 23 years old. Look, it's not an incredibly exciting return for Freddie Galvis, but it's a return that's expected for a veteran shortstop who is on the mend, coming back from injury. Freddie Galvis is not going to light the world on fire for the Phillies, but the Orioles are able to gamble on a 23-year-old reliever with good strikeout numbers in high A. He's worth a shot, and you know that Freddie Galvis isn't going to be providing you value past this year, so why not gamble on a younger minor league pitcher like Tyler Birch? And the other thing is, it, it, you know, not val offering value after this year, that doesn't preclude the Orioles. It doesn't stop the Orioles from signing Freddie Galvis in free agency. He's exactly. still going to be a free agent. I don't think he, they will because of the emergence of Ramon Arias and the potential of Richie Martin and the potential of Jemai Jones and those young infielders. However, they could deal him away in theory and sign him back. So, you know, it's, they're only giving him up for two months. It's not like they're giving up years of control of Freddie Galvis. Um, but you, you mentioned Tyler Burchin and, and what he provides. This is 
to me, reminds me a little bit of the Jonathan VR deal. And that was an off-season deal, and they got back Easton Lucas. It was a one major leaguer for one minor leaguer deal, which this appears to be so far. We haven't heard any players to be named later or anything like that. Um, and the minor leaguer not being part of the top 30, you know, doesn't have the highest of ceilings, but considering you're giving up a guy who's a rental who is not a high-impact player, not an everyday player on a very good team, it, it ultimately is just you getting something. Yeah, at the end of the day, Freddie Galvis really doesn't do anything for you if you keep him on the yeah, Orioles It's something this year. for almost nothing. Exactly. It's You're trading a veteran shortstop on an expiring deal when you have a younger, better shortstop as his replacement it didn't make sense to really keep Freddie Galvis on this team at all. So you are getting something in return. You're getting yeah. a dice roll in return in Tyler Birch. Like I said, he's 23 years old. He's got good strikeout numbers in high A, and he's a reliever. So that means he will probably have a little bit of a faster track up to the major leagues if he eventually gets to that point. So we'll see what Tyler Birch does in the Orioles system. He will probably start in Aberdeen because he's only gotten eight appearances so far in high A with the Phillies. So we'll see what he's able to do. I think the dice roll on Tyler Birch is very much worth the move of Freddie Galvis, especially considering how well Ramon Rios has played and the fact that you want to keep that middle infield open for a guy like Richie Martin or Jemai Jones to be called up to the Orioles at some point soon. And Mike Elias is talking with the media, I believe right now as we're speaking, yep. and uh, he said... Uh, Tyler Birch had a big stuff jump after the shutdown, just meaning, you know, shutdown ends and and he's back on a field because they didn't see him in 2020. And all of a sudden his stuff looks really good. 15 strikeouts per nine that you mentioned. That's a pretty high number. ERA is slightly less important for relievers one and also for minor leaguers too. Uh, but I think that, you know, you're just looking for stuff at this point, 23 years old, still pretty young. Um, so we'll see what, what he ultimately turns into. Um, but, Brendan, I think it's also interesting some of the moves. We touched on it earlier, but some of the moves that they didn't make um, because I think the most obvious candidates in our minds were Paul Fry and Tanner Scott. And, frankly, I thought Paul Fry was by far the most likely to go considering he's a, approaching 30. He does still have years of control, but he put up pretty good numbers so far this year. ERA around three and a half. We'd seen his name at least thrown around by national reporters as somebody that other teams might be targeted. And Michael Elias said that they were really close to dealing one of their relievers. You'd think Tanner Scott or, or Paul Fry most likely. Uh, to me, I just guessed that the market was not as robust for Paul Fry as maybe the Orioles had hoped. Yeah, uh, Ryan Miller on Facebook, thank you for following along. Thank you for watching. I wish I could give you a high five because I think he hits the nail on the head with his comments here. <laughs> You've got two relievers that are younger. Paul Fry is 28, 29 years old. Tanner Scott is 27. Both of them aren't arbitration eligible until the winter. They are pre-arbitration eligible. They won't become free agents until 2025. So you've got two good relievers who are younger and are under team control for the next four years. This isn't a Michael Givens scenario where he is going to be leaving in free agency in a year or two and you just need to get as many good prospects as you can. These are two relievers that if you aren't blown away by a trade, you do not need to move them because they are under team control until 2025. So it's entirely possible that Michael Elias shopped around Paul Fry and Tanner Scott and just was not impressed by any offers, but he is not 
hard-pressed to deal them. No. You can keep them on the team for the next four years, and guess what? Hopefully they will still be good relievers for the next four years, and they will be helpful when the Orioles are pushing towards the playoffs. So you did not need to trade Paul Fry and Tanner Scott. They were very good assets that you can keep under team control for the next four years. Yeah, I think that the the market for Paul Fry, if he keeps pitching like this, you know, the, the longer that he keeps uh, putting up, you know, an ERA around the three and a half or maybe hopefully a little bit lower, maybe right around three. He had a two, four, five ERA last year. Good strikeout numbers. He's a lefty. I think he will continue to maintain his value. So long as he stays healthy and he's putting up similar style numbers, he's under control, like you said, till 2025. That market, whatever market he had now, will probably, and it's a pretty good bet that Mike Elias is making, he's betting that this market will probably be around the same as it was now as it will be in a year. Right. Or maybe in the offseason. You know, what if what if Paul Fry has a good final two months? His value could even go up. Teams are always looking for relievers. And part of the reason they deal, dealt Michael Givens last year, he was on an expiring contract. Or he had, uh, yeah, he was on an expiring contract, I he think, was. at that point. Uh, or it had a, a year and a half because he was with the Rockies. It was again a year and a half yeah. rental. He is current. Well, he just got traded at this deadline yeah, yeah, because true. he's on an expiring contract. So you had Michael Givens for the next year and a half. Yeah, and uh, the Miguel Castro trade. He's younger, so you know he fit more along the lines of Tanner Scott because Tanner Scott's twenty-seven. Castro at the time of dealing him to the Mets last year was twenty-five. Uh, but is he twenty? Yeah, he's twenty five. Now he's twenty six. He was twenty five at but the time. Close, much closer to free agency. He's going to hit free agency in twenty twenty three as opposed to Scott in twenty twenty five. Well, the thing with Miguel Castro too that's important to keep in mind: the Orioles were, by all accounts, blown away by that deal to get Kevin Smith in return. Yeah. He was the number twelve prospect in the Mets system at the time. He's currently the Orioles' fifteenth ranked prospect, but is pitching better than that. He's pitching better in the double-A level right now than guys like Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken have been pitching who are ahead of him in the prospect rankings. So they were probably blown away by that Kevin Smith deal. And the argument for dealing somebody like Paul Fry or Tanner Scott is that because they're controllable, you should be able to get a good deal for them in return. Yeah, It should be a better deal because they have more years of control. But it is, again, entirely possible that nobody had that offer on the table. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, considering the other quality relievers that we saw dealt, I mean, you're not going to, obviously not going to get in the upper echelon like a Craig Kimber return, but we saw this market was pretty flooded with relievers, and teams always need relievers, and there were a lot of deals with relievers, but not too many of them had an ERA up in the three fives. You know, I think that there were some that were dealt, but they probably didn't get a whole lot in return. I don't I, you know, off the top of my head, so many deals have happened in the last hour, but I, I just don't think that that, you know, it, there clearly was not enough interest in him to deal. If, if Kevin Smith were on the table, a player of that ilk, I absolutely think they would have pulled yes, the trigger. Absolutely. But you can't fault them for going the boring route and holding on to them and assuming that their value will increase or at least stay the same. Well, the boring route here is, oh, well, I guess we keep two good bullpen arms under team control for the next four years. Yeah. That's not a loss. No, That's it's not. two good bullpen arms for the next four years that yeah. do not hit free agency until 2025. And unless you are getting very good prospects in return, there's no reason to move them. Yeah. Nobody is in a rush. Nobody is on an expiring deal. 
you had to be blown away by a deal to move Paul Fry or Tanner Scott, and clearly Mike Elias was not. And talking about being blown away by moves and the Orioles having to be blown away by move by an offer in order to trade them, the three M's, Trey Mancini, Cedric Mullins, John Means, none of those three guys uh, are, are dealt. And Mike Elias said the Orioles really were not close to dealing any of those three guys. No. Of course, you know, take take everything for, uh, you know, with a grain of salt because ultimately a GM is going to say what he needs to, and especially you keep a guy, you're not going to say, well, we were about to trade him. You know, they, they said they were pretty close to trading a reliever, but it's not like, well, we had this offer for Paul Fry. You know, so it's not like they, they would say it if they were close to dealing him, but I tend to uh, believe uh, Elias here because it, we didn't think it was likely that they were going to be moved at this deadline. And from what we heard from the national reporters the Orioles did not sound very keen on moving any of these three guys. No, and they wouldn't have moved them unless they were absolutely blown away by an offer. We've got uh, some Facebook comments that are looking across the beltways uh, to the Nationals and what they did at this trade deadline, of course, making the big splashes, moving Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to L.A., and they get guys like Kybert Ruiz and uh, Josiah Gray in return. Um, AJ on Facebook uh, saying that they should have gotten something similar to Kybert Ruiz and Josiah Gray because those three guys, Mancini, Mullins, uh, and who am I forgetting? Mancini, Mullins, and Means, Means. excuse there me, we go. Uh, are all better than Trey Turner. Uh, no, but also <laughs> they just were not going to get a top 15, 20 prospect in baseball for any of those three guys, and it just doesn't make sense to move any of them. No. The, if you're not going to get really good prospects. The, the Orioles and the Nationals are in two very different cycles right now, and uh, Nationals are probably on the... If it's all a giant wheel, the Nationals are probably on the downslope. Yeah. The Orioles Nationals are, still, are currently where the Orioles were like three years ago. Yeah, maybe they have a, you know... a franchise player in Juan Soto that, that helps yeah, to that's have. true when Michael Elias inherited the you know the Orioles situation he didn't exactly have a franchise guy to build around right like Mike Rizzo does going forward however um it just doesn't sound you know like the those deals were out there and also why it, are you looking for yeah them? you don't really question. need to be it, someone would have to call Michael Elias and say exactly. we have this crazy offer that's going to blow you away I don't see any your scenario 26 year old center fielder who's hitting 320 and has a gold glove potential yeah I mean in what scenario is Michael Elias going to call somebody and say hey you want to make a move for Cedric Mullins yeah this, there's just no call point. up the Rays and say do you have Wander Franco on available you know right. uh, available for us that's the only way that's happening right if you get one of the best not prospects the be yeah. in baseball <laughs> not exactly Wander not Franco but the it, number one but that's the point. Of the three of them, I think that Means maybe was the most likely to go just yes. because he is the uh, one on the older side. I think he's the oldest of the three, 28 years old. Um, and, you know, pit teams love starting pitchers, and we saw some massive deals being made for some starting pitchers. Jose Barrios was traded and uh, got a huge return yeah, for, for Austin Martin. Yeah, for Austin Martin, who, if you Whew. recall was on the board when the Orioles were picking in 2020 and could have taken him with the second overall pick out of Vanderbilt. So he was a high-level prospect that was traded for Jose Barrios. If an offer like that were on the board for John Means, I like I, I tend to think that Michael Elias would have considered it strongly. But um, from what we've also seen, uh, Michael Elias saying that essentially um, – Trey Mancini, he hopes, will be around for a while. What was the exact quote, Brendan? He I, said, uh, the future is very bright for Trey Mancini. I hope he's here for as long as possible. This is going to be a fun 
off-season worth of podcasts when we start getting into the Trey Mancini extension yeah. or trade or just let it play out talk. Look, we've talked about it with Trey Mancini on the last podcast leading up to this trade deadline. He provides the Orioles more value than any other team in baseball. Yeah, he prov- he's worth more to you in-house exactly. than he is not. Yes, a contending team could use a first baseman, and maybe they could go after Trey Mancini at that point. But the three teams that I pointed out as potential Trey Mancini uh, trade destinations were the Red Sox, Yankees, and Brewers. The Brewers got Eduardo Escobar, the Yankees got Anthony Rizzo, and the Red Sox got Kyle Schwarber, who I assume they're going to play at first base. So none of those three teams made any sense for Trey Mancini. The only other team that I was thinking about was the Seattle Mariners. But again, you would have to be blown away for a move for Trey Mancini because of how much value he not only provides your team, but to the community, to the city, to the fan base. All of those things just push Trey Mancini's trade value up and up and up to the point where no deal would make sense from another team. Yeah, I've I've said it before in this podcast, but basically the, the idea of a veteran presence, I think, can be overblown at times. This is not one of those cases. Correct. This is a case where this guy checks all the boxes on and off the field, has one of the best stories in baseball, is one of the best human beings in baseball from what we've heard, and is a true leader in your clubhouse on a team where you don't have that many veteran leaders. So he and in addition to the fan base being behind Trey Mancini more than they've been behind almost maybe any player in the Michael Elias era, definitely in every player yeah. in the Michael Elias era. Um, so he he is a fan favorite. Um, you go walk around Baltimore, you see Trey Mancini jerseys. He's still under contract for a year and a half. You know, he's still under 30. It just makes too much sense to hold on to him. And if, if you need to reevaluate trade conversations, you can always do that in the offseason or next deadline. But it sounds like Michael Elias may be starting to uh, open the door for some trade or first, not for some trade, for some contract negotiation talk. Yeah, and I think the really exciting thing, Paul, about this trade deadline and the lack of Orioles moves, I we've talked about it before leading up to the deadline. We were kind of wondering if the point was now, but I think this is a, all but confirmation that the Orioles are at the point where if if there is a good player at the major league level, it is not an automatic trade. No. Over the last few years, if there was a solid player at the major league level, there was a pretty high percent chance that they were going to be traded regardless of their contract situation because you were just overhauling the farm system and you wanted to build that prospect pipeline to be competitive over the next few years. I think this trade deadline, without moving Paul Fry, without moving Tanner Scott, two guys that are under team control for the next four years... It seems like Mike Elias is at the point where if there are good major league players, he intends to keep them if they line up with the rebuild timeline, which is now getting closer and closer. It's over the next few years. Paul Fry and Tanner Scott line up with that timeline over the next four years. It seems like Trey Mancini, if he gets extended a few years, hopefully lines up with that timeline as well. We have reached the point where if there are good players there is a pretty good chance that they are here to stay rather than just automatically being dealt at the deadline. Yeah, and some 
big picture comments coming uh, in that Michael Elias press conference. He said, I, talking about their contention window, he said, I think it's getting closer. He said, but I continue to be daunted by what we see in our division. We have a very long way to go. We have a lot of work to do. He's keeping expectations in check. Yeah. Uh, he knows that, so. And he knows that this team still has one of the worst records in baseball and that they are still struggling to... to um, you know, produce wins on a day in and day out basis at the major league level. But like you said, Brendan, I think that it it's it's not at the point where they are still in all. You know, it's not like the remnants and the the uh, the remnants. I guess you could say of the of the fire sale from 2018. They still have they have guys now that they have in house that they are homegrown for the most part that they feel like they can go forward with and those guys can be on the next good Orioles team and to me that that just makes sense considering they're closer to competing than they were two years ago yeah and he makes a good point there it's going to have to be a very good Orioles team in a few years to keep up with this AL East because, oh my goodness, did the AL East make some moves at this trade deadline. The Yankees get Joey Gallo, Anthony Rizzo, and Andrew Heaney. The Red Sox get Kyle Schwarber. The Blue Jays get Jose Barrios. The AL East is loading up. Yeah, but that's where the Orioles hope to be in right a year or two. Maybe probably closer to two years, but... You never know. Maybe next year they are better than expected. But again, this is the idea of with all the stuff that we see about the negativity that we see about prospects and no prospects are guaranteed. We see that all the time. And in our Twitter mentions, no. But the the added benefit of, of stacking your deck and getting as many good prospects as you possibly can is not just that you expect them to turn into good players for you. It is that you make them enticing for other teams as we saw at this deadline. All the prospects being traded around baseball. The Yankees are a good team. All these teams are good. The Yankees are good. The Red Sox are good. The Blue Jays are good. But they have good farm systems still. And that talent pipeline means that they can continue to add to their team um, via trade. So that is what the benefit of having a great farm system is. It's not just that you expect to find great homegrown talents come up through your farm system and produce for you. It's also, once you are good, you can trade some of these guys. And and maybe in a year or two, you have enough guys in your farm system where they're not just doing well at the big leagues, but then you're saying, let's go add somebody on that team. Let's throw a couple prospects their way. Yeah, Ryan on Facebook asking, uh, do we think it would be prudent of the Orioles to add some talent uh, to the Major League roster via free agency this offseason? I don't think there's going to be any splashes, but I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see a few more value deals here and there. Brendan, it's July 30th? Yeah. It is. But... I'm it's, thinking five minutes ahead. That's I true. I don't know what I'm going to do for dinner tonight, Brendan. But it, it's still an interesting question in terms of what the Orioles did at the deadline <laughs> yeah, I know. and what the timeline might be. It's a great teaser for future yes. discussions. To have. I don't think it's a, a big contract offseason. I think it's a, a value deals offseason. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that uh, I am not even close to thinking no. about that. Smarter people are. I'm sure Mike Elias is. Yes. I'm sure you are, Brendan. You're plotting already. Oh, I'm plotting. How, however, I am just, I'm thinking five minutes ahead. We're thinking... Tyler Birch. <laughs> We're thinking, what's the corresponding move? We're thinking, where roster? is Lewis Clark State College <laughs> that Tyler Birch went to? If you know, 
Please tell us. We don't know. Is it? And the other thing is, are we getting it wrong? Is it Lewis and Clark? That would make sense, wouldn't it? Lewis and Clark We're both State. Simultaneously googling Lewis Clark State. It's Lewis Dash Clark. As if it were a hyphenated. It it is a hyphenated. Name. It you is got it. as if it were. It is. It's in Idaho. <laughs> that adds it's up a, in Lewiston, Idaho. That yeah, it's in the most random place possible. That adds up. I think he dominated there, though. I would hope so. I would hope at as Lewis well. Clark College. <laughs> I'd kind of hope it was. Yeah. I got to say, this was not on my short list of colleges. I didn't really wasn't thinking of going to Idaho. This was my number one. I didn't get it. <laughs> I just you got missed into Lewis, out. but you didn't get into Clark. That's fair. Nah. Yeah. Um, all right. On that terrible joke, that just about <laughs> does it for our podcast. Thanks to Bobby Blanco for running this thing and for running our other show. Long day for Bobby as he covers also some Nationals news on the other side. A so. lot of Nationals news. I don't on know the if you side. know, but there were a lot of moves being made. A few. Uh, I think 46% of the moves around baseball being made were done by Mike Rizzo. Approximately. This deadline. Yeah. Uh, let us know what you think of the Freddie Galvis to the Philadelphia Phillies trade and the return in Tyler Birch. Of course, you can catch the podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and watch it live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And uh, give us a follow. At Brendan Morty is Brendan's Twitter handle. I am at Paul Mancana. We will be back at some point next week. To uh, at some point, maybe we'll get some sleep over the next few days. Been a Doubtful. busy, been a busy July. Yeah, but, uh, whew, we're getting there. We are getting there. Thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, we'll catch you next time.